On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are going to be talking about how housing might be a driver to help the Ontario economy recover, especially something called opportunity zones. What are opportunity zones? Well, stick around. You're going to find out. We're also going to be talking about the cancellation of the Around the Bay race this year. Unfortunate, although I think most people would say understandable. And why is it? that TV award shows, the Grammys, the Oscars, the Golden Globes, shows that were ratings gold for decades are suddenly plummeting in the ratings. Are we just tired of celebrity or is there something else going on? Stick around. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Since March, well, before, but I mean, especially since March when COVID has really taken over all of the news, housing has been an issue that has become very, very prominent in many, many discussions in a lot of different ways. We know, for example, that here in Hamilton, there has been lots of talk about people living in tents on different places in the public because we're told uh, a lack of housing is a problem for them. Now, there may be other issues as well, but housing, certainly, we are told, factors into that. We've had debates about whether buildings that were purchased by Metrolinx on the LRT route, the proposed LRT route, should in fact be knocked down or repurposed for affordable housing. We have heard about rents that are going through the roof. We have heard about real estate prices that plummeted when COVID first hit because, well, not prices, the sales, the numbers went way down, but now have rebounded back up to full force with sales continuing to climb. And now a new poll that's out says a majority of Ontarians see housing as a key driver in the economic recovery that we hope is coming. Tim Hudak is the CEO of the Ontario Real Estate Association. He joins us now. Tim, thanks for the time today. Really appreciate it. Yeah, of course, Scott. Thanks for having me on the show. How, um, in a very broad, and I know like we could talk about this for six hours and neither you nor I have that time, uh, but in a very broad way, how does real estate, how does housing drive the economic recovery of the province or at least contribute significantly to it? I bet that you uh, and the audience of CHML could not think of another product that has more spinoffs than when somebody buys a house. I mean, just just think about it, right? When when a family buys a house, almost always there's going to be a major renovation project or two that they that they want to get done. They're going to buy some new furniture and buy some appliances. You you pay the movers, um, the you you pay all kinds of different associated businesses with that. In fact, we've calculated both an average house. Sold, but 90,000 in spinoff. So back when we had our last downturn, 2008, 2009, it was really real estate that kept our economy above water. So if the Ford government or the Trudeau government is looking at ways to stimulate our economy, get people back to work, more people on payroll, there's nothing like stimulating the housing sector because it's going to cause so many spinoffs in other areas can help get our economy back on track. And I mean, that look, that makes a ton of sense. And and whether it's to hire people to do it or the do it yourselfers or whatever else, that that makes a lot of sense. The the one, I guess, the flip side of that, perhaps, is that the more renovations and stuff that you're doing to homes, we already know what house prices are. And it's very difficult for people to break in. Does this not drive up the price of housing even more and make it more difficult for people to get in? It does two things. So a couple things that we're recommending to the provincial government to do, because we believe real estate can be the locomotive to get Ontario's economy back on track, right? Getting more people back to work. So number one, we're suggesting a short term, say six months, 
land transfer tax holiday. So that will help make homes more affordable because you don't have to pay that, that whopping tax. You have to have money in hand. And the second thing on that is we found through our studies it's going to bring a lot more supply in the marketplace. There may be people who want to downsize and say, well, I'm not going to downsize so I have to pay that, that tax. So that family home never goes on the market. Mm. Maybe young families who say, you know what, kids are getting bigger. We need more space. But, man, I don't want to move to Ancaster because I've got to pay a land transfer tax. I'll simply renovate my house. So that starter home never goes on the market. In fact, with using Altus Group, the consultants, we've shown that 32,000 more homes will come on the market. More supply means homes being more affordable, and then you're going to have a lot more spin-off as well for the broader economy and help people get back to work in other sectors. One of the things with what you're talking about, one of the things that you're also proposing, I understand, is a tax credit of sorts on home renovations. We've we've had those kind of things before, have we not? I, do I not remember that there was one under the Harper government, a similar type thing? Yeah, good memory, because that was probably one of the, the most effective um, policies to that the average family uh, could benefit from. It's all in our memories, right? If you remember as Harper or you know, Martin or Cretchen or whatever, people remember that policy. I mean, you had places like Home Depot promoting a government policy because it really resonated with the average family. Now, I'll joke around here a little bit. I think it caused most marital strife because the husband would have one idea, the wife the other, or whatever, right? So you fight <laughs> about what the one big project is. But it really spurred economic activity. I, I referenced earlier that 0809, it was really real estate that, that saved our economy from going deeper. And that's when Harper brought in that policy. The other benefit here, too, is there's a lot of underground activity happening in renovations, people being paid under the table, right? And it brings them above the surface. In order to get that tax credit, you've got to file your taxes and pay the bills. So government actually does capture some new revenue from this. All of us have had things about our house that we've decided we don't like or maybe something to fix like a home office because of COVID. Everybody's talking about this. So we think this will cause you know good spinoffs, more job creation, revenue from government by eliminating parts of the black market uh, and uh, also make people feel happier about their major investment, their home, because under COVID, we've all had that maximum pressure of the whole family living under the roof, you know, 24-7. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Tim, you point out something else, and I thought this one was fascinating, although it makes a ton of sense, I think. Uh, you call them opportunity zones, Um Explain what this means and, and how you would envision these kind of things working. Yeah, for sure. And if any of the listeners on CHML want to see all the details, they can go to our website, aria.com slash COVID recovery, right? COVID recovery. It's all about how we get Ontario working again and using real estate as an engine to, to drive it. So opportunity zone. So this is an idea that, you know, you see in the United States, believe it or not, it's something that Republicans and Democrats actually agree upon in the states. Pretty impossible. Rare states. Impossible. So, so true. Uh, it's popular in England and the United Kingdom. Here's basically what it means. You can look at an area that's impoverished and really stuck in a rut. That could be, you know, a brownfield area in Hamilton, for example, a lot of old brownfields from the industrial history. Or it could be a, a small town in a northern community that, you know, that's off the main path and is losing jobs and people. And it will enable the government to declare a, you know, a neighborhood or a community as an opportunity zone. And that means that businesses would get a tax credit for investing there. You would uh, lower fees uh, as well and speed up approval processes until it gets stimulated and starts building up again. 
So it'll attract jobs and investment and then more housing opportunities as well, people to fill those jobs. So that's what that's all about. We're pitching it to the provincial government has worked elsewhere. Why not here in Ontario? And I would think that, you know, maybe it works anytime, but I have to believe that in the last number of months when so many people have discovered, and I use the word discovered because they probably had no idea before that they could work remotely and don't need to be in a downtown or don't need to be near their office, that this all of a sudden could be a realistic thing for people to say, I, you know, I may not have to live in downtown Hamilton or downtown Toronto. I can live miles and miles away and it still can work for me. Yeah, that's a really, really good point. I mean, it's, it's been awesome to see how people have rediscovered Hamilton in the area. It's been nice to see, you know, the boon uh, in housing there. It has meant higher prices. Um, so it can redevelop brownfields for sure. But you make a good point. We've actually polled the general public. There is an increased interest in living in smaller towns, rural areas, or cottage country as a result of COVID. So if you do an opportunity zone, it helps move the jobs where the people want to go. The last number of years, you know, huge percentage of the jobs were created in Ontario, either in Toronto or Ottawa, and people had to move to the jobs. We may be in a different world where the jobs will move to where the people want to be, and that's an opportunity zone would help facilitate that by creating areas with lower taxes, uh, less red tape, and enhancing investment in places that have not had it for a long time. Tim, do we even have to move the jobs there? And I'm not being facetious, but uh, we talked to a real estate agent on the show here a number of months ago from Cottage Country who was talking about the enormous surge in sales this summer because people realize they can do their work from the cottage. And so why not? Do, Do we even need to have the jobs there as long as you can have good internet connection and do your work from there? Yeah, that's a, a point we're hearing a lot from our realtor members who work in cottage country. That The number one question they're getting now is not, you know, what's the cost? It's how is the internet connection uh, at that place uh, that you're listing? Yeah, we're certainly seeing a lot of interest in that area. Uh, you're right. I think there'll be more people working from home. It, it may not be as much as we think now. There may be some that work from home more due to the office less, but there's still an office. But You know, our bottom line is we want to make sure that all of Ontario is going to share uh, in our economic recovery. We've all suffered a lot. We've all sacrificed a lot. We need to get to better days or positive days ahead. Those that have lost their jobs, we want to give them hope again. And so our rebuilding plan, again, at OREA, O-R-E-A dot com slash COVID recovery, we lay out 15 different ideas uh, that get people back to work in every corner of the province, whether in a big city or a small town. We don't expect, Scott, the government's going to take up all 15, but hey, if they do one or two, I think we're going to be in a much better place. Okay, so let's take the idea, and again, because I find it really interesting, this opportunity zone idea, because it seems as though what you might be doing is opening up, if you open up new areas, prices presumably might be a little lower so that people who are complaining, rightly so, that they can't get into the market might have an opportunity. What, What could the government do directly to homeowners or to those areas that might stimulate this and might make this happen? Well, again, you do that in combination with the land transfer tax holiday. We recommend six months that you take away that tax. It's a, it's a punishing tax and you've got to have cash at hand, right? You can't add that to your mortgage. Um, the other big issue around the land uh, transfer uh, tax um, is that uh, um, it does discourage supply. So you lower the tax, you'll get more offerings in the marketplace. You combine that with the opportunity zones. Yeah, that can make a big difference for a small town or northern community uh, that has, you know, lost uh, talent and lost people over these last uh, number of years. 
The other thing that fits really well with this, too, as part of our paper, again, at aria.com slash COVID recovery, is speeding up the approval process for more more housing, to bring more affordable choices into the marketplace, more variety of homes, knocking out some of the outdated, you know, 1970s bylaws that restrict innovation, like, you know, tiny homes, laneway homes, other options. We, we just believe fundamentally the more choices that people have in the marketplace and the greater affordability, the better off we're going to be as a province. Tim, I don't think you mentioned where people can find this online. Can you just tell us one, one <laughs> time? <laughs> say it one more time. Closely, they say, get the word out three times at least. Uh, yeah, aria.com, and you can go on there and you can find it. Tim Hudak, really appreciate the time as always. Appreciate it. Thank you. Have a great evening. It is a really interesting idea um, how exactly it might look or work. That's a great discussion point, but the idea of finding ways to move people out of hotspots into areas that haven't been so heavily developed now that we see that we can work remotely, it's a really interesting idea. It's a really interesting idea, especially when so many people say, I can't afford to get into the market. Well, this may be a way to loosen things up a little bit. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, we may have been born to run, but uh, you won't be running through the streets of Hamilton this year, not with the Around the Bay Road Race, unfortunately. It was originally postponed from its usual date in March uh, until the end of November, and news today that circumstances just will not allow it to go off. I, I think most people get it. I, I assume most people get it. I assume most people understand what's going on. I want to bring in Anna Lewis, who is the race director, who had to make the decision today. Anna, thanks for doing this today. Thanks for having me. Uh, this one, um, I would guess that when you spend your entire year working on this thing, pulling the plug is a little bit of a painful move today. Yes, uh, quite agonizing, actually. You know, we we have so many passionate volunteers and uh, partners and sponsors that uh, we all look forward to uh, hosting this uh, historic event. So, yes, absolutely. It's uh, painful to have to to cancel, but uh, know that it is the right thing to do for everyone. How did you come to the decision? What was it that finally made you decide that there was no way you could do it? Um, well, mainly it's the uh, provincial guidelines limiting outdoor gatherings, and uh, when that number decreased, um, that's a, you know a sure sign that um, our race couldn't move forward. Um, our, we have you know over nine thousand uh, participants annually, on average. So uh, right now, that that can't happen, and for it to change within two months uh, seemed very unlikely. Well, but I mean, some people would say, but you had two months and maybe by then things might have gone down. So why make the decision today? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of people that are planning. Um, you know, when you run a certain distance, uh, you have to have a plan, a running plan and, uh, you know, making accommodations. Some people are, are traveling um, outside, the, you know, the area. So they need to work in a plan to do that. Uh, so we wanted to give people as much notice as possible and also not to string people along. You know, this is what it's going to be. And we also need time to um, organize and implement safety measures and uh, protocols. And that um, couldn't be done if we kept waiting and kept waiting. We have to order supplies and um, talk to vendors uh, about, you know, a, a race and how to how to execute that. And we just wouldn't be able to do it um, in less than two months, uh, given 
all the new things that we would have to implement. Had you, uh, I mean, since March, when you had to cancel, as you've been thinking about different things, were you contemplating different ways of doing it? Because I mean, obviously, you know, your start group, your start line, we all, we've seen the pictures every year of the giant masses of people at the start. Did you contemplate, you know, could we start people in groups every five minutes and just do chip time with smaller groups or do, I mean, did you go through every conceivable possibility of how to do this? Yes, actually, we have a lot of ideas too and and a lot of plans on how we could move forward when we have the green light. So that, you know, we do take into account the physical distancing necessary, start ways, uh, the time frame needed to accommodate large um, groups and uh, and, uh, and our our specific numbers. Um, And there's lots of things. There's so many aspects. You know, we talk about the water station. We talk about the expo. Um, There's so many uh, parts to this race that we would have to kind of start to bottom, you know, from the top to the bottom, look at how we are going to uh, execute a safe race, um, given all the the different risks uh, out there. So it was not, if I understand what you're saying, it was not a case year after year, a lot of the stuff is the same. You have to replicate it year after year, the setup in the, in the arena or the whatever Mm -hmm. you couldn't, obviously there was a lot of other moving parts here beyond the stuff that you can't just transfer it from what you were planning for March. Right. Um, So, you know, when you talk about physical distancing, you, you now have, you need a larger space. So we have to talk to the city in terms of, you know, road closures uh, and, you know, the number of police out there and how long they're out there Um, inside first Ontario center, you know, depending on the indoor limits too, how do we use that space uh, within the guidelines? Um, So there's a lot to um, facilitate, you know, and, at the finish line, there's a lot of people coming in at the same time, getting their food bags. Um, so we would have to look at how we could spread them out. Um, Huffing so, and puffing on each other. <laughs> I yeah, mean, honestly, well, breathing heavily in a small space, that's part of it. Right. You know, running, you know, you're going to exert yourself and there's going to be, you know, sweat and, and huffing and puffing. And so um, you, you just really have to be careful and mindful of of, of the sport and how it, it can be held uh, safely. You mentioned the city. This is obviously, there are spin-offs for the city. I mean, with hotels and restaurants and, um, you know, St. Joseph's Hospital Foundation gets a lot of money out of this, that they're not, they're going to lose some money this year. How, how open was the city to some of the changes that you were talking about? Because some of these things would have had to extend the number, the, the hours that the roads were closed or other things. Was the city open to different things? Um, I think the city is always open to uh, listening to our plans and our ideas of how we could execute the race. Um, to be honest, we weren't even at that point where we could talk about it. Um, the provincial limits just were not at the place where we could talk about, you know, a 9,000 person event. Um, so, you know, the city is always open to listening to our, our ideas and our plans, but we really just didn't get to a point where that was, necessary you know um so you know i i'm i'm confident that we would have great conversations and and a lot of collaboration with our city partners but we just haven't been able to get to that point where you know a conversation like that would happen you're listening to the scott radley show podcast on 900 chml the around the bay road race which was canceled today for this year was going to be held on November 22nd after originally wanting to be held in March when it usually is held, but COVID has other plans as it does for a lot of other things. 
Uh, it makes me wonder, and how how often were you tuning in and studying COVID numbers between March and now? I would say a daily basis. Yeah, <laughs> we you know we we wanted to keep a close eye on what's happening so that uh, it, at any moment, if uh, we got the green light or it looked like we could um, move forward, that we would be ready. And were you one of those who was riding the wave on, on days when it was good news, you were feeling pretty elated and on days when it was bad news, you were feeling pretty bummed? Absolutely. It's definitely a roller coaster ride. <laughs> yeah. What has the response been to this? What I mean, I, I'm sure some people have reached out today or some people have talked to you about the cancellation. I, I think a lot of people probably expected it, but what's the response been? You know what? It's been pretty good. Um, yes, as you had mentioned, it, this was no surprise. I think a lot of people uh, were expecting it or uh, just wanting to get the, the, the official announcement, but they were I don't think there were any surprises, especially with uh, the number of cases going up, the uh, gathering limits um, mandated by the government. Um, So I I really don't think anyone was surprised. Uh, Lots of um, encouragement and lots of people saying, we'll see you in 21. Um, So, you know, very, very um, positive, actually. I think a lot of people, honestly, Anna, if you had not cancelled and tried to push ahead with this, a lot of people might have thought you had been dropped on your head. I mean, I mean, honestly, because of what's going on, it, I think people would have been a lot more shocked at you doing it than not doing it. Possibly, yeah, yeah likely, yes. I would, I would think that uh, just given uh, what's happening around us, um, it would, you know, and you know, who knows if we would have had enough volunteers that would want to be in in an event like that with lots or enough of runners. Yeah. Do you, do you runners, have? Do you yeah. know that you would have had enough people to really stage a proper race? You know what? We wouldn't have. We don't know because um, registrants were um, were given a date of October fifth to decide if they wanted to participate in November or defer to twenty twenty one. So we didn't, uh, and a lot of people kind of were waiting to see what happens, um, which is what we why we wanted to give such a, a long date uh, to confirm. So we don't know, um, but we do have an indication that lots of people are active. Um, you know, lots of people telling us that uh, when it is time, they are ready to come and participate. Uh, we've had people try to register and inquire. You know, I don't see the, you know, online registration button. Um, and so we, we've shared that, you know, we're not going to open it till we know that we can host the race. So there's lots of, um, lots of people that are eager to, to run when we have the green light. You mentioned 2021 and you mentioned about people eager to run this event is is such a part of the Hamilton annual tradition. I, I wonder if you have concerns that when you remove it for a year that people forget or they find other things to do, or if you're quite confident that when you throw the doors open again, everybody who was going to is going to come back. Um, I am concerned. It's, an, it's a concern that, you know, will we be able to host the event in March 2021? Um, we are hopeful, and I think that's all we can be at this point, that uh, the situation with COVID-19 um, trends in the right way and that we're moving in the right direction where we can um, once again do the activities that we love and enjoy um, and are at a point where we can have mass participation events. So hopeful is all I can give you. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, the, the Bay Race is a long-standing history in Hamilton and Burlington, uh, we have a great loyal following. You know, many have had streaks, which I'm sad to say will um, have been interrupted. 
um, like 25, 30, you know, and volunteers with the same streaks, you know, volunteering for 30 years plus. So we do have a base, I would say, a, a great foundation of loyal uh, participants and volunteers and partners. And uh, it is my hope that they will return when things are good and, um, and we'll take it from there and, you know, one day at a time. I, I know that um, you've offered a number of different options for people who had registered to defer to next year, defer to the year after, or just get their medal and their shirt. Uh, I also noticed that you're not going to give out refunds. Why not? Well, we, we had to postpone two weeks before the actual race. So um, the actual race was March 29th this year. So two weeks uh, before an event, we've already, like the shirts and medals were actually sitting at First Ontario Centre ready for the event. Um, so they've been paid for all our deposits on the venue, on our, our timing chips, um, all, you know, rent. Um, all of those have been paid because we work on a yearly budget, um, like any organization. And so there are expenses throughout the year that are paid with registrations throughout the year. And so a lot of that money has been spent and uh, it's we're unable to provide refunds because that money has already been um you know, paid to our vendors and our suppliers and all our different race partners. So unfortunately, they, you know, the deposits we've made, they said uh, that we could use that deposit towards the next race that we host. So in 2021, we have a deposit on the venue. Um, uh, really quickly, because we're short on time, and, and yeah. thank you for that answer. Uh, very quickly, is there a silver lining? And when I asked that, uh, is there a chance, because Heartbreak Hill was going to be closed this year, that was not going to be part of the race. Any chance that because of the delay, that's open when you do it again in March? Well, my fingers, toes, and eyes are crossed that it will. <laughs> um, I believe that there is a donor that is willing to um, pitch in to uh, help cover the costs of fixing it. But I have not heard officially whether that will be um, done in time for 2021. It is, uh, it's an unfortunate story, but it's a, um, an understandable story, I think. And that is, uh, the around the Bay race not going this year. Anna Lewis, race director. Thank you for the time today. Really appreciate it. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Radley show podcast on 900 CHML. The Emmy awards were on the other day. Uh, you probably heard something about it because a Canadian show got lots and lots and lots and lots of awards swept the comedy awards, but Nobody, seemingly, or very few people in the States were watching. Did okay in Canada. But down in the States, the Emmy Awards audience was off 12%. And this is a year after it dropped 32%. The Oscars this year dropped 20% to an all-time low. The Golden Globes and the Grammy Awards dropped, although not as much. What is going on? Are we no longer interested in these things? Do we not care about celebrity anymore? Are we all cutting the cable and so we don't care anymore about that? I know someone who may have an answer to this. His name is Bill Briou. He writes online. You can read him. He writes about television at Briou TV. Love having him on the show. Bill, thanks for doing this today. Hey, my pleasure, Scott. So, uh, theories. We are seeing all these award shows, and I mean literally all the award shows dropping to some degree or another. They, I mean, once upon a time, Bill, the Oscars were the night that everybody watched and other shows too what's going on i think there's a bunch of things going on scott it's not just one thing but a lot of things and it's a generational thing um 
and it's just different ways entertainment is consumed, you know, and I just think that the old days when things were neat and tidy and you knew there were the four main networks and you knew the Oscars were Sunday, Monday, or whatever it was, and it's just changing, you know, the attention spans, everything else. So people, I mean, I, I used to sit, even when I was very young, and sit through the entire Oscars, you know, way, way, way back when I was a kid. And so I'm I'm used to that rhythm, but now we have a generation of young viewers who, they just watch the highlights, you know, they watch the YouTube version. And to sit and watch a whole award show, I don't think is just going to do it for them. The other thing is that a lot of the... In the old days, the awards went to shows everybody watched. 30 million people would watch All in the Family or even American Idol. You know, it was uh, different. And now nothing is a big, giant, mainstream, cross-the-board hit anymore. Um, so that's why you're getting just 6 million people watching the, uh, the, the Emmys, I think, because the shows that are winning, a lot of people don't have that Disney Plus package or Amazon or you know, Apple plus TV, <laughs> the the stuff that the critics rave about and that generally wins awards, they're just not seen by a mass audience. I love that you talk about the old days and then say American Idol. <laughs> well, yeah, I know. I, didn't I know where you're, it. Yeah. No, no, I know where you're going, but it, I mean, look, it it is American Idol at its peak was what, 15, 20 years ago now? And I mean, that doesn't sound like that long ago, but in television, that is a long time ago. Yeah, like 20 years ago. I mean, when Regis Philbin died not that long ago, in 1999, I was working at the Toronto Sun, and that show was the monster hit of all time, and it was on four nights a week sometimes. Who wants to be a millionaire, yeah, for yeah, sure. Yeah, who wants to be a millionaire. And, and it, it um, you know, you would get uh, 30 million people more watching the, the, those episodes. Nowadays, a hit on TV is 6 million viewers. Uh, that's on a NBC or CBS. So even football numbers are down right now, even NFL, because people don't even know what month it is. We're, we're all messed up. You know, <laughs> that's the true too. Are off. I can't tell if it's a weekend or a weekday. So it's just, it's hit TV on a lot of levels. Uh, although I did see today or yesterday, I don't know when I read this, that one of the networks, I think it's ABC, has just offered to up the NFL contract to $2 billion. So, I mean, clearly there are some things they still feel, even though the numbers are down on a relative basis, are still getting enough of the audience that they can make it worth their while. But yeah, it, it, it absolutely, it seems like we have just spread so thin on these things that there really isn't that water cooler show anymore that everybody watches. Yeah, and that's why I think with the Emmys, you know, if you're sitting in, in Wichita or wherever, and the first hour of this show is all about this Canadian comedy that you've never heard of because it airs on a minor cable network on the States, you've already switched over to football. and But, you know, you wouldn't switch back because the last two hours are these HBO and Netflix shows that you've also never heard of. So the networks are literally presenting a three-hour infomercial for the competition. Why would ABC or NBC carry the Emmys anymore? It's literally a show that tells you you're missing the best shows, and they're on another <laughs> level. You know, so <laughs> what, but just before I dive back into that, because I do, but what do you think, and I'm, I'm putting you cold here, that you had no prep for this, what would be the last moment, like big moment thing, the last water cooler moment that 
so many people would have watched. I'm trying to think. I mean, the first season of Survivor, the, the last episode is one that comes to mind. There's got to be something since then. But what's the last must-see moment that we've had or must-gather moment on TV? Wow, that's a, that is a tough question, Scott. There, uh, I'm trying to think. It's um, because now it's it comes down to almost um, something that was on CNN or something that was on on the news. One thing that we're all still watching is newscasts, and um, that uh, was especially true when COVID first hit, when people were home from work for the first time and nothing was open, and so they just watched TV. And news ratings went through the roof in Canada and the United States. Um, and everybody was watching every day because the prime minister was telling us what we can or can't do, and the president was just talking about the president. So, you know, that. So, in terms of entertainment, uh, The Masked Singer was kind of made some noise this year. Uh, it's such a silly uh, show. I, I guess people needed an, an escape that was just um, a goofy game of guessing. And, uh, that, but even that, maybe 10, 11 million in the States, you know. So it, there's nothing like what we remember, even as, you know, recently as uh, American Idol. You, you just said a word that I think is fascinating in this discussion, and the word is escape. Uh, you could also say diversion or any other word that means kind of the same thing. And that's one of my theories on these award shows too, is that people watch entertainment for an escape. They don't, they get bombarded all day, every day with politics and division and everything else. And you tune in to watch something that's not that as a break. And as these award shows have become more and more political, Bill, I also wonder if there's not part of it there that people are saying, oh, you know what? I can't even get away from it here, so I'm not interested. Yeah, I think you're right, Scott. There's something to that. I'll tell you, here in our house, um, we're always looking for the newest episode of Match Game. (laughs) We just want to hear people fill in the blanks. We want to just see Alec Baldwin. uh, Because it's it's an hour where you can just not worry about anything else. It's just sort of fun. And maybe it's a bit nostalgic, because it's based on an old show. But... um, it's it's comfort food in a new package, and and that seems to be what we're turning to more and more. Well, and there's no risk, I don't think, with shows like that that you're going to get angered by something someone says because you know what your politics are different from mine, and I have to drive it home even now. I mean, if you're if you're a sitcom star, I'm not sure how many people at home really want to hear your political views. Make me laugh, funny boy. I mean, that's what you're there for. That's what you're being paid huge money for. I don't necessarily want to hear your views on this or that or the other, and I think people do turn the channel. Yeah, you're right. Although on Match Game, occasionally, Alec Baldwin will slip into his uh, uh, Donald Trump, you know, <laughs> so I guess he just he can't resist. But, you know, that's one of the interesting things, too. How many people are watching Saturday Night Live, watched it last season? In terms of touch tones, there's more people watching that at midnight on a Saturday than um, in especially younger viewers than anything in prime time. So that's one of the few that seems a bit um, COVID proof or um, you know division proof in terms of the number of options. I also wonder if we are slightly fatigued by celebrity in general. And this was not a TV thing, Bill, but you'll remember this. Back in March or April when COVID really um, 
got going, there were a there was a, a video done, a song that a bunch of very earnest celebrities, I think Gail Godot was the the driver of this one, sang "Imagine" the John right. Lennon song. Yeah, and most people watching this went, "Oh, I mean, it right. was it was cringy to listen," and I think a lot of people went, "I don't need celebrities." to comfort me. I'm quite capable of dealing with this myself. I think they thought their importance was higher than it really was. Yeah, no, that's a great example. I remember seeing that and, you know, you all you, I could think of as, would John Lennon be alive today at whatever he'd be, 80, <laughs> I guess, right? And, and, and yeah, you know, I mean, if, I, I'll, I'll listen to him and, of course, he's a celebrity, but um, it doesn't, yeah, there's just something... Um, I thought you were going, I was laughing because I thought you were going to say, what would John Lennon say? I think he would have thrown a shoe through his computer if he'd seen them do that to his song. Yeah, uh, well, maybe. He'd call his lawyer. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> All right. Let me ask you a couple other things about TV while we have you here, because there are, there are two things that I am truly baffled by in the world of television beyond the award shows. Can you, as the expert on television, explain to me the success of 90 day fiance and all of its 900 various spin-offs. Well, a quick answer is that, um, people have always been fascinated as a bottomless fascination in seeing other people humiliated on television. <laughs> that's that's all, a good answer. That's always been true. That's a good answer. You know, and I think that's part of it. Um, and it, it is, um, we're talking water cooler is the expression or whatever the, the new term is, but it is one of those crazy things that you, you're asking, have you seen this? So um, I guess, yeah, that's, that's the only explanation I have. It's like Tiger King. Remember there was a show yes, in January yes. and February. Oh, you have to watch this. And it was all the buzz. And we looked at eight minutes of it, and Sandra here said, I cannot watch this. Animal cruelty, please change the channel. And, um, so I don't but know. She is I mean, on, she's on dancing with the stars. Now, one of the people from tiger King, that's how big a deal it became. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's, there's, it's, it's rather depressing. Uh, when you look at the list of people who qualify for dancing with the stars and you realize we're at that point, um, you mentioned earlier about the death of celebrity. I mean, I'm happy about that it's been too much a great sign that after 20 years they're going to finally cancel the kardashians i mean that's a tipping point i think because people being famous for being famous enough you know i think one thing about covid times it's like what's real and what isn't and um i think that's people are much more interested i don't know about you but if i see a good documentary man fantastic yeah, you yeah. Know? so well and bill think back i mean think look i, I don't want to some of these shows that I'm going to mention are, first of all, way even before my time. And I'm not necessarily holding these out as the beacons of entertainment, but even think of something like Lawrence Welk, all right? And which is definitely a, an acquired taste for those who like. But at, at the one thing you could say about Lawrence Welk is he had people on there who were talented, or Ed Sullivan when he had his show, oh, yeah. or even Johnny Carson for the most part, or others. You didn't get on there for being a boob or a buffoon. You had a <laughs> talent. There were right. exceptions, of course. But now it's like we're scraping the lowest brow form of entertainment to try and dive down to literally the deepest pit of human stupidity. Yeah, it's true. I mean, there's a lot we can 
chew on there, Scott. I mean, even if you just look in terms of late night talk shows, it's it back in the day there was Johnny Carson and that was it. That's where comedians would get discovered and careers made. That's where you'd see, um, you know, uh, everything sort of, sort of unfold in a very adult way. Um, now there's 20 late night talk shows. And um, there's sort of, that explains all of TV right there. It's the pie is split 20 different ways now. So you've got a talk show that's got a liberal point of view or conservative or is more diverse or is features women. You know, like it's just, there's something for everyone. It's just in different channels now. And I think that's just why there's so few people watching the Emmys and any other one show. All right, one other one that I got to ask you about because again, a huge success, and uh, and I I fall into this one, but I don't quite understand why I fall into this one. So maybe you can be my therapist on this. <laughs> Explain the overwhelming success of HGTV because it's especially the shows where you have people going and buying a house on the beach in Turks and Caicos or something, which is like, you know. I, I'm trying to understand why I find that interesting and I can't really explain it, but they're having huge ratings, relatively speaking. You know, I, I, I honestly, uh, and, and, and I always tremble when someone sets me up as an expert on TV and then asks me about something I know almost nothing about. <laughs> that, that, that's the problem with TV today is I, even so-called experts can't keep on top of it. So it's an area I don't know much about. And I, and I guess it's just, though, from what I do know, um, you know, there's a fascination with um, you live vicariously through these things, yeah. right? So yeah. you want to see the beautiful things, and and um, you know, even if it's just some you're watching for ideas, even if it's just to drool over what the unattainable. Um, uh, you know, yeah, maybe and maybe just, right now we're in an age where almost nothing's attainable. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, it really makes you wonder if, you know, local channels, local stations that are looking for some ratings. I mean, if, if that's what it takes, just go into local celebrities. I mean, literally local celebrities homes and show their homes, you know, may, maybe that's all it takes. Maybe, maybe we're making it too complicated. Well, it, what's fascinating to me, I mean, I'm doing a lot of streaming and a lot of watching on screens and um, even Zoom meetings where there's press conferences now for television critics. So we're, we're getting panels that are uh, virtual of people who are coming up on shows. And, you know, Bette Midler, and there's a show, um, oh, uh, Coastal Elites, that's on HBO, that um, Bette Midler is a part of, and uh, also um, Dan Levy is a part of. Mm-hmm. And uh, the press conferences, you, you, you're interviewing people in their homes. So you see inside Bette Midler's home or Dan Levy's house or certain rooms in these places. And yeah, you're right. It's fascinating because you're not even listening or looking at them. You're, you're looking to see what they've got, what they own. I know when um, on Saturday Night Live they did some virtual versions and uh, Tom Hanks hosted one of them and people are going, look, I've got that same toaster. <laughs> like, <laughs> so I'm almost Tom Hanks. Like that, yeah. I'm, I'm Tom Hanks and I are basically the same. We own the same hair curler. Right. Um, yeah. Well, there you go. Uh, it, it's, it's, you know what, it's as good a theory as any, and I'm not sure there is a right answer, but, uh, again, I, I sit there and watch sometimes bill and I just catch myself thinking, what am I doing? But I'm totally caught up in this. So I guess it's okay. I guess it's, I guess it's working, whatever it is. Bill Briou, you can find his stuff. Briou, B-R-I-O-U-X dot TV. Go on there. You can find his stuff. It's great 
TV writing, if you're interested in this kind of thing, which I'm sure you are, because who doesn't watch TV? Even those of you who don't have cable anymore, you still watch stuff. Bill, always appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this. My pleasure, Scott. Anytime. That is, uh, it's really, it is interesting stuff. And you know what? You probably have a show or a channel that you watch that you don't even understand why you watch it. It fascinates you. It interests you, but you go, ah, what am I doing? I don't know, but I'm loving it. So I'm going to keep going. Uh, I think maybe we all need to have a bit of a therapy session on that one or something. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.